Welcome to another episode of the Tactical Leadership Podcast, where we focus on building better businesses. I believe in order to be the best leader that you can be, you must be willing to be the first follower and have a servant mentality when you're in a leadership position. If you want to be the best leader that you possibly can be, be sure to stay tuned and listen to industry leaders and hear how they built winning cultures in their own businesses. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Tactical Leader. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Brian Bogert, and we're going to talk about how he awakens the sleeping giant in every human. Before we begin, I want to remind you this show is brought to you by Nightly Productions. If you're ready to discover, embrace, and share your voice, head over to nightly.productions to find out how we can help you create that tactical content and build a thriving business. Brian, welcome to the show, my friend. Man, I'm happy to be here, brother. And this one's going to be a fun one. We met a few months ago now at a men's retreat and really hit it off well. Uh, we have a similar story, similar journey. And I want to give the audience just a quick opportunity to know a little bit about you. This is, a, I think, scratching the surface at the most, honestly, about who you are. But overall, you're, you're a person that believes, like I mentioned at the top of the show, that there's a sleeping giant in every human. Your purpose in life is to awaken those giants, turn them into legends by helping them grab what they believe is just out of their grasp. Overall, you are a heart surgeon without a blade. You do not start outside of what you need to do. You start inside with who you are. In a world that is disconnected, you revolutionize how individuals, leaders, and entrepreneurs deeply connect with their authentic selves to achieve the best version of themselves. All of that to say is you're a human behavior, a performance coach, a speaker, a business strategist, and you disrupt the normative approach on how to create sustainable growth and lasting change, both personally and professionally. We're definitely going to chop that up and really dive into that because your story is one that truly inspired me when we met. But before we get into that journey, that crazy journey that you've been on, man, what's an interesting fact that we might not know about you? I lived in Australia for a year and a half, and I lived in England for a year and a half when I was a little kid. So before the part of my story that most people are starting to know, this took place. So I had a chance to live across the globe, experience different cultures well before you know the significant elements of my story really hit. Nice. And was that you were living with your folks? Were they military? Are you military traveling? Or? My dad was high up in the aeronautic industry. And so he had reps all over the world. And we went and served where those reps needed him at the time. And so, yeah, we moved with our family. He traveled a lot at the time, but we only lived in those two alternative countries. You know, it was really one of those things. It's funny because when I was three, I had an Australian accent. And then when I was four and a half, I had a British accent. And then when I came back to the States at six, it, I started, I still had both for about six months. So home videos in our family are pretty funny. American parents and then two little kids that have like very extreme accents. That was a fun thing. I was going to ask, where's the accent? If you still say crikey every once in a while or whatever, crocodile Dundee. <laughs> I got to pull it out, you know? I love that. And I'd imagine that's really shaped your journey. And it's an interesting one where you you have a different journey than a lot of people, a lot of struggle, a lot of things that you've really overcome that has led to you having this mindset of adaptability, flexibility, always being optimistic about the things that can happen as long as you set your mind to it. Can you kind of start off way back when, how did you first start along the path of like thinking about leadership, thinking about self-mastery? I know that's a lot of what we talked about, but really what was that first instance where your mindset shifted into where you are today? 
Yeah. So it, it is interesting because I have to tell you the first moment where it shifted into where I am today, I'm actually not going to start where you think I probably will with the story. I want to take it a little bit different because you said something that kind of triggered me, to be honest. And it triggered me not in a negative way, just in something that I think is important to clarify. Because what you just said is that I believe that with the right mindset, we can accomplish anything. And by the way, that used to be my belief system. It's still a part of my belief system. But one of the awakening moments was when I was 20 years old, I rebroke my left arm. We'll talk about what that looks like later. And I went 10 months with it hanging by my side. The reality of it is I had gone that prior 13 to 14 years building an intellectual and mental narrative that was, I'm good, I'm strong, I'm capable, I can do anything myself. And all of a sudden, when I'm in one of the most vulnerable periods in my life at 20, it actually allowed me to realize the power of our narratives and the power of our mental toughness and the power of our mental intellectual processing. Because guess what? The world bought into my narrative. Because when I was in this deep, dark place, nobody was there. And I didn't have the courage at the time to ask for help. So what that opened up for and what started the process really of leading me to where I am today is that I started to recognize that our narratives can fail us very frequently and many times they can lie to us. And so what I started to recognize was I had to lean back into human connection using vulnerability and authenticity, which I believe are the glue that binds human connection. And then it was that process that started to bring the emotional piece back in. The reality of it is what I've realized in working with some of the world's highest performers is that those that reach the top of their fields, the top of their potential, the top of their ability based on who they are, are not the ones that just have a strong mental toughness, right? That is an important part, absolutely critical. But it's those that understand whether they are hardwired intellectually or emotionally and can understand and be aware of the narratives that both are giving us and can balance and regulate between the two because both lie to us. And so that turning moment at 20 is what took a lot of the emotional intelligence that I'd gained in my prior period, a lot of the toughness that I'd gained, a lot of the endurance, overcoming adversity, right? The things that like I had to have the push through on. And it started to soften it a little bit to recognize that it was really about the integration of both. And so I know that probably wasn't where you were going with that, but I had to say that where I am today is less to do with my original story and more to do with the evolution over the last 15 years. And that's an interesting distinction because I know when we chopped it up a lot, we have similar injuries to our left arms. I have a little bit of nerve damage. I think yours is possibly more traumatic than that. I know what you went through was a little bit different. Are you willing to share that with the audience? Kind of tell them a little bit about that aspect. Absolutely willing to share. So I'm going to just hit the tops of the waves because I know that our conversation is going to go a lot deeper. So I'm not going to give you the cinematic element of the story. I'm just going to cut right to it. My mom, my brother and I, after we moved back from England, went to our local Walmart to get a one inch paintbrush to finish a project at our house. As we were headed back to the car, I got to the car first. My mom and brother were three or four feet behind me. And this was back in the days before there was key fobs. So I had to wait for my mom to catch up, stick the physical key in the door, turn it and go on our way. And as I'm waiting there, a truck pulls up in front of the store, parks, and the driver and middle passenger get out. Now, Zach, the passenger all the way to the right did what any one of us would do because he felt the truck move backwards. And what would happen? I'd scoot over to put my foot on the brake. What I didn't realize until recently is I always just told it like, oh yeah, he scooted over to put his foot on the brake. Well, I know if I'm sitting in a passenger seat in a moving vehicle with no driver in it, I get into the driver's seat. I'm probably not going to just press down on the brake. I'm probably ramping that knee way up and I'm slamming it down with force. That's what I recently realized. And that's what happened. All that force missed the gas pedal went, or sorry, missed the brake pedal and went right into the gas pedal. Combination of shock and force threw him up on the steering wheel, up on the dashboard. Before you know it, he's catapulting 40 miles an hour across the parking lot right at me with no time to react. 
hit our car, ran over me diagonally, tore my spleen, left a tire track scar on my stomach, and then continued on to completely sever my left arm from my body. So there I was on a 115 degree day in Phoenix, Arizona. My mom and brother watched the whole thing happen. They look up and they see my arm laying 10 feet away. Fortunately for me, my guardian angel was also there. I always have to tell this part of the story because I'm forever indebted to this woman for choosing to go into action versus go on with her day. There was a nurse that walked out of the store right when this took place and she saw the literal life and limb scenario. She came over, stopped the bleeding on the main wound and saved my life and instructed some innocent bystanders to go inside, grab a cooler, fill it with ice and get my detached limb on ice within minutes to give me a fighting chance of having that. If it was not for this woman, Zach, I either wouldn't be here with you today or I'd be here today with a cleaned up stump. That's just the reality. So I know your listeners probably weren't expecting it to go there today, right? And I know that I have a very unique story. But what I've also realized in all my time of doing this, brother, is that we all have unique stories. What's important is that we pause and become aware of the lessons we can extract from those stories and then become intentional with how do we apply them in our lives. And that's what I would tell you I've done very effectively in my life. And one of the ways I help people see themselves more clearly. And I love putting that foundational story there because I know this about you because I've met you, we've talked, we've chopped it up, but with the audience not knowing that you had that at a young age, it kind of puts a different context around this catalyst story at 20, where you've built this rhetoric in your mind. And like you said, it lies to us either for better or worse, right? So you've built this rhetoric in your mind that you can do anything, you don't need any help. And then another injury happens. And then you, again, almost you, lose my arm again. You broke your arm yeah. again. And then it turns into, you literally had to ask for help again. But now as a young male, young adult, you have the ego that you've built up over the years. You've had the confidence that I don't need anybody else. And maybe just that, that overall arrogance. I don't need anybody else in my life because at some point you had to develop that to survive. I did have to develop that to survive. I also didn't quite understand how much I was guided through the process by my parents originally. I had a ton of help the first go around. I didn't have a lot of help the second go around. So I learned completely different lessons. But I will tell you that the result of that, that mental narrative was a result of a couple of things. One, I came out of the gate with this injury. And I can't tell you how many times people would ask me what happened to my arm. And I got so used to their jaw hitting the ground and then immediately them turning to my parents for validation to make sure I was telling the truth on my own story. Because they were expecting me to say, I fell off my bike. I fell off the jungle gym. They weren't expecting me to say my arm was ripped off by a truck, right? So they look immediately. So all of a sudden I'm in this position where I'm being told by the external world that my story isn't believable. And I have to then have to justify my own narrative. So what did I do? I closed up. I got very tight on that narrative. The other side of it is I got tired of being confined into the box of what others believed they'd be capable of in my situation. So their projection of what they thought they could handle in my scenario actually was putting limiting elements into my life and I refused to be defined by it. So those two things propelled this mental narrative, which frankly is what I needed at the time to survive. I'm just grateful that I had another gift. I call it that, right? In, in another opportunity to learn new lessons because it allowed me to have a more holistic view to the world versus one that was a, from a protection place. And you said something really interesting just now talking about the first time you had an amazing amount of support, the second time you didn't quite have as much help. Do you think this is because of the years of hardening that you did where you pushed people away, where at that point, like your circle is so small, like there wasn't anybody to ask, not because of their lack of willingness, but because your lack of capability and that push away? Oh, it's 100% that. I, I didn't have the courage to ask for help. And so I had convinced myself that this was my lot, that I had to figure it out. It was 10 months of largely doing most things by myself in a very limited capacity. And by the way, I had tons of relationships. 
I had tons of friends that would be there. I had so many people that would have lifted or helped me with anything I needed. But again, my mental narrative, it actually put me into a place where I'd isolated myself. And I was, I had too much ego at the time. I didn't have enough courage to overcome the fact that my mental narrative was flawed and I needed help. I, I think that's a, a really interesting thing to notate because I know when I was going through my injury, that's essentially where I was. I, I felt incredibly alone. But the reality was I wasn't alone. Just the people that I knew I could contact, I was like too arrogant to contact. Then I asked the wrong people for help to be there for me. They weren't there because they were, again, the wrong people. So it's kind of like an interesting dichotomy in our minds where we're not willing to ask the people that will help because we're too arrogant. Then we ask the wrong people. They don't show up. And it just becomes like this central feeding mechanism where we're like feeding our on this mentality of, well, now I don't know anybody or I don't need anybody. Nobody showed up for me. We kind of just like, for me, at least it turned into like beating myself up constantly about this same thing. 100%. Is that kind of the journey you went on? Yeah. So mine was a little bit different, but it largely was the same. I mean, directionally, yes. And so what I would say is, is think about this though, outside of even just physical injury with anything in life, think about how many people, how many entrepreneurs, how many business leaders truly feel alone? Are they? Or have they convinced themselves that they are, right? And so this is like a really basic element of the human experience that makes sense for a whole variety of reasons, right? So if we look at the human experience through four buckets, we all seek and desire to feel four things, I believe. We all seek and desire to feel safe. We all seek and desire to feel protected. We all seek and desire to feel seen and understood. And we all seek and desire to feel connected. By the way, this last one is the most important, but it doesn't exist unless these first three do. So let's just use your or my example, right? What happened is we had created a narrative for ourselves that was designed to protect ourselves, right? So that we could feel safe. Now, the reality of it is when we protect ourselves, our walls go up, which means that immediately what we're doing is guaranteeing that nobody's going to be able to see through that armor to see us and understand us and connection is not going to happen, right? And so what we try to do is to focus on exactly what you did or like what I did. What are the things that I can do? What are the strategies, the tactics, the people that I can call that might be able to help me? And then we believe that that's what's going to get us there, right? And then we're constantly disappointed. The reality of it is the angst, the resistance and energy drain that we felt in those periods of time was really the fact that we knew that we were actually isolating ourselves. Inside, our subconscious mind knew that we were actually doing that because we had our walls up because we could not be vulnerable enough to admit that we needed it. And so how often as leaders do we do that? We put our walls up to be able to show the external world that we're good, we're capable, we've got it, we can make the decisions in our business. So infrequently, though, do the strategy and tactics actually solve the problem. Because what I find is the root of what keeps most of us stuck, what kept you and I stuck in those deep, dark periods of time, because our ego, arrogance, or inability to let go is really a combination of three things, environment, or sorry, emotional triggers, behavioral patterns, and environmental conditioning. So it's until we actually understand those things, because again, what kept me stuck, not from getting help, had nothing to do with asking the right people, had nothing to do with going and getting physical therapy if I needed to it. It had that I had convinced myself that I didn't need that, right? And I didn't put myself in a position where I could let my armor down long enough to ask for it so that people could see and understand me, connect with me, and then create a layer of protection around me so that I could feel safe in whatever environment I was in. So the isolation that exists is often a self-fulfilling prophecy based on a dynamic of, are we trying to protect ourselves to make ourselves safe? Or are we putting ourselves into environments where we can be safe? Yeah. And I know that was something that we kind of chopped up about back in October when we met where I, honestly, I mean, you know, I have the armor tattooed on me, right? Like it was literally a self-fulfilling prophecy, like you're talking about, where it's something that 
whether I cognitively designed it or not, it became a reality. Is there a way for us to recognize when we're doing this that you've noticed that you help people as they have these walls up? Like, are there these blind spots that we just don't recognize that you help people start recognizing as you're working with them? Yeah, the answer is yes. And obviously it looks a little bit different for everybody, but I am a really, really big believer on turning inward first with the concept that everything begins and ends with you. You know, somebody said to me, it was actually in October too. It was the first time I'd heard this quote and I've stolen it. It's not mine. I wish I could give credit to whoever the original person was, but Alex Sharfin was the one who said it. He said, you know, if you're constantly putting out fires in your business and life, there's a good chance you're the arsonist. And so for me, that resonated very deeply at the time because I had some fires that I was putting out and I help people with this stuff. But I knew that there were some fires that were there and it's very easy for us to point fingers, point blame, feel like it's not our fault. But if we take the extreme element of ownership and recognize that if everything begins and ends with us, then we can start to neutralize and diffuse what happens and raise our level of awareness around us. So the basic thing we do with people is to start getting them to be more aware so they can be more intentional, right? Our minds process 11 million bits of information per second, but we're only consciously aware of about 40. So what that suggests, my friend, is that we're largely led by the unconscious, the unaware, the things that are just conditioned and patterned into us, right? Our emotional triggers, our behavioral patterns, environmental conditioning, it's all in line. Think about pre-COVID, how many times people would go to the office and by 9 a.m., they don't remember anything that took place in their morning because they were in autopilot, right? And how often does this happen to us? So it's not until we move the unconscious to the conscious the unaware to the aware that we can start to feel like we've got some influence and control over our lives and feel like we're not just victims and not just fate based on how it happens. So I always start again, and that's what you said, even in my intro, I always start with the internal game. We always have to understand, right? What are the pains that have taken place? The traumas that have taken place, understand the things that have shaped you in your life, positive and negative. And then also understand what are the emotions that are tied to that? And then how have those patterned forward in our lives so that we can actually start to break the cycle and create freedom and fulfillment in our lives by further aligning with who we are? I'll tell you for me, I lost who I was because I chased all the what's. What house, what car, what amount of money, what amount of external success? Again, to justify my own self-worth, I had to prove it to myself. But those were also the same things that were keeping me stuck. See, it was all tied to my shame cycle. And it was a matter of me helping to become aware of it, where and how it was impacting me, where and how it's creating damage in the world so that I could start breaking the pattern so that I was no longer stuck in my shame or swirling the drain based on all the things I've now become aware of that I'm actually just judging myself more of. I can determine what I can do about it when I see myself more clearly. And a lot of that is like the human reaction to pain, right? There's pain avoidance, pain intolerance, things that we just essentially don't want to deal with. And so we just kind of like skirt away from it. And a big piece of what I know you teach and you talk about is talking about embracing that pain to avoid long-term suffering. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll do it. I'll do it relatively quickly. And if we want to go further into something, we can. Here's the thing. The narratives of the world, literally what the world tells us is to reduce, eliminate, or avoid pain. Think about how it's been built. Everything's been based around convenience. Everything's around pain avoidance. And oh, by the way, this is a natural evolutionary response to survival, right? We're conditioned to want to avoid pain because it's immediate, it's short-term, we feel it, it's right there, and we want to avoid it at all costs. A hundred years ago, if you cut your leg, you could die. So that makes sense. But today we live in a slightly different world. So we need to redefine pain and we need to better understand suffering to make sure that we can understand this distinction. So pain is defined as short-term, intermittent, a direct cause from something, and then alleviated once that direct cause is removed. 
Then what do we do as human beings? We screw it up like we do everything else. We put adjectives in front of it like acute and chronic. Acute maintains the definition, but chronic inherently changes it because it implies it's no longer short-term and it persists after that direct cause is removed. Let's stop calling that chronic pain and call it what it actually is, suffering. Thing is, pain gets lots of attention because we feel it, it's real time, and we want to avoid it. We don't want to admit that suffering exists, particularly when it's a direct result of our choices. But the problem with suffering is it will creep up on us sometimes before we even know it's there, and sometimes until the results cannot be reversed, right? So let's understand what this looks like. We can embrace the pain of hitting the gym for 30 minutes a day to avoid the suffering of aches and pains of a sedentary lifestyle. We can embrace the pain of a difficult conversation with a loved one or spouse to avoid being stuck in a loveless marriage when we actually want divorce or wanting a divorce and being stuck in a marriage or vice versa. I think I just mixed up the words on my example. But the point is, we can also embrace the pain of the fit our kids are sure to throw with the fit they're going to throw when we haven't put down their mobile devices at the dinner table to avoid the suffering of years of lost meaningful connection and conversation we'll never get back. As business leaders, we can embrace the pain of firing our top salesperson contributing the most to top line growth to avoid the suffering of stagnant growth and losing all our other top talent because they were the greatest cancer in our culture. The thing is, this applies to everything in our life. What's important is that we've got to start acknowledging the suffering we wish to avoid, identifying the pains we tend to avoid and learning to embracing them, and then establishing this as a habit in every area of our life. Because I believe, Zach, that we all must choose our pain or our suffering will choose us. I'd rather have influence and control over which one I live in. And it's, it's interesting the way you you dissect that because it turns into one of those things that I think a lot of us don't necessarily recognize. We haven't done, you're talking about starting on the inside. We haven't done that work, but maybe we don't even know that first step along that journey. When you look back at everything you've been through and knowing how similar we were with shutting out so many things, what was that first mm-hmm. like external resource that might've like kickstarted this journey for you? Was it a mentor, a book? life just really hitting you hard? What was it that kind of pushed you in the direction of this self-discovery? Yeah. So there've obviously been multiple layers and multiple different situations, but I'll tell you like what pushed me really hard was right after we had kids. So I've got an eight-year-old son and a six and a half, almost seven-year-old daughter. And I have always said for years that I was going to do everything for the benefit of my family. And, you know, I've seen objectively and removed, you know, so many patterns where highly successful people in business end up waking up 25 years later alone because that was the only focus. And I told myself that that was never going to be me. Well, guess what? I had kids, took a week off, and then I missed the first six months of my kid's life because I didn't redefine or reset my priorities, my guidance. I didn't build my life in intentional alignment so they could become self-regulating. No, I just kept burning the candle at both ends. And I'm blessed that I had a moment that I saw it and I felt it. And I knew in that moment that I didn't have the skill set, the resources, the knowledge, nor did I have anybody in my world that could help me figure this out. So I sought to hire my first coach. I interviewed 14. 13 of them were a mile wide and an inch deep. They had no relevance and credibility to me, but they went and they hung their hat with a coaching certification or they had done something, but they didn't really have anything that was going to help give me context to move forward. And when I found somebody that connected, who I'm forever indebted to, I worked with him for about two years. His name is Ben Newman. He's well-known in this space. And what I would say is, is that what, what he did was literally the first month of working with him, he said, Bogart, you got to be doing this. I was like, yeah, 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 whatever. F off. I'm paying you a lot of money not to tell me how great I am, but let me figure out this other stuff, not add more to my plate. He goes, no, 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 Brian, your personal, your professional life, you've been building people in businesses forever. He's like, you're always in this natural coaching elevation mode. It's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. He trickled it for nine months till the universe gave me a sign I couldn't refuse. It was telling me what he had been telling me for nine months, but with a really forceful way. 
And what I realized is that he had been telling me what I needed to hear, not what I wanted to hear at the time. And so it was that process of really being able to recognize where this work was adding impact into my own world that I decided to jump in with both feet and do it from a place of really being able to position. Now I did it side by side with another business that I built and scaled with other business partners to 15 million over the course of 10 years. I ran it side by side for five years. And the reason was, is I didn't think it was going to be what I wanted to do full time because I still hadn't dealt with my shame enough to recognize that the world I was living in was actually what was contributing the most to me losing myself. And so despite whatever external success I had. So it was that moment of having children that I am you know, forever indebted to my wife for the gift she gave me in them. And I'm forever indebted to that moment for being able to at least have the awareness enough to recognize that I needed to ask for help then. But I'll bet you if I hadn't had my experience when I was 20, recognizing that I need to lean into human connection and start lowering my wall to be able to ask for help, I might've just remained stuck. And so it's really a combination of a lot of little things over the course of my entire life that have led to where I am now. But those are some of the bigger moments. And I really love that it, you had somebody that what, what a lot of people don't recognize, I guess, is that, and you've done this to me, tell me a thing I need to hear, but I really don't want to freaking hear it right now. And it's one of those, like, I mean, it's powerful to have people like that in your immediate vicinity, right? That proximity to those people. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you went through? You said you interviewed 14 people. I made the mistake of my first business coach was somebody that was like, here's the parameters of a coaching program. And it was like one of those like uh, franchise type coaching programs, or she had never run a business herself, but it was like, here, teach this textbook and this will grow a business. That didn't work. Obviously within the first month, it was one of those, I recognized the opposite. That's not somebody that can actually help me with what I need. Can you talk to us about like, how do you actually put these people in your proximity and how you select these people to keep you accountable in that fashion? Yeah. So do you want me to talk about how I did it originally or how I do it continually? Both. Hit both, both. force. Because I know that's a journey. That's another process. So how I did it originally, the reason I interviewed so many originally is I didn't know what I didn't know and I didn't know what I was looking for. But what I knew is that in that moment, um, just like what you identified now, at this point, I had already built and scaled a successful business. We were doing well financially. We were in a place where like some of the other things around like the business application. Yes, I wanted amplifiers on it, but really I, I needed somebody to help me see myself more clearly and who had understood how to grow and scale a business, who had had some element of personal adversity in their life that understood how do we actually balance around those things. And truly, those first 13 were all people who fit the bill of what you just described. And by the way, there's a place for that in our world. So I'm not vilifying that, but they weren't relevant and credible to me based on my experiences, what I needed and what was going to move me forward. Right. And so here's the thing. I know I'm not the right coach for every single person. In fact, I'm probably not the right coach for other than a small portion of the population that's going to do really well in the type of framework communication and trust that we build. That said though, right. I also don't try to be something to everybody. And I'm not a big believer again, assuming strategy and tactics. And if I get trained as a coach, but I don't have real life experience, I think a coach is different because so much of what they're doing is not only bringing out the best in you, but there's somebody that also has walked the path before you that you can learn from, and you don't have to pay the same dummy taxes because of their experience and resources, right? And so you've got to be honest with yourself on where you are in the world as it relates to what you're looking for and what you need. Now, he was the singular coach I had for a while. That was kind of my holistic natured coach. What I started to do after that was I started to wrap myself with specialists because he did have a holistic nature, but there were areas that I wanted to get growth and advancement that he didn't have skill sets in. Now, I also believe every coach has a season, right? 
just because I can help somebody for one or two years doesn't mean yes. they should be with me forever. In fact, the way we're building our business model is to help elevate and empower people because I don't want Love people it. dependent on us, right? We want to actually get them onward so they can grow and heal and impact other people. But what you have to recognize is that regardless of the season, if you want to accomplish something, you want to know some piece of knowledge, you want to learn how to do something and you've not done it before, you don't know what you don't know. You don't even know what questions to ask. Find someone who's been there before. So today I have a business coach. I have a consciousness and meditation coach. I don't currently right now, because of some certain things that I've been going through over the last year, I've had health coaches and nutrition coaches. Right now, I'm working with somebody around brain optimization as a result of TBIs and, and traumatic brain injuries that I've had that's very specific and targeted work that's through a specialist and a coach. And so for me, I've had swim coaches, I've had cycling coaches, anything that I want to specialize in that I want to get better in, I find coaches. Photography is a great example. I picked up a camera. I'm a freaking rookie, but I've been able to capture some cool shots. But my father-in-law was a photographer and a high-level photo editor in large enterprises for 50 years. Guess what? He literally coached and trained other photographers, not only on the shooting, but on the editing. I lean into him for feedback. What I know I don't know, I have to find solutions for. But what I don't know I don't know, I also have to surrender to, to put myself in the best position to learn from people. So I now coach with specialists. Oh, I also left out. We also have a marriage counselor and therapist. I also go and see somebody on the emotional component that doesn't hit on the other pieces. I have right now at any given time, four to six coaches in my life. Because I believe that I need help in those areas to see things that I don't see otherwise, to have people that will tell me what I need to hear, show me what I need to see, and allow me to actually lean into it from a position of trust. Yeah, I'm glad you broke that down for us. I think that's really huge and key where it's not, I love you said seasons, because if you're, it's like a therapist, if you're stuck with one dude for five years or a doctor, and she's been there working on you for five years and nothing's gotten better, that's probably not the person that can help you. And that's a very important thing to recognize is like, you're not necessarily meant to be with the same person forever because if they're doing their job, just like a leader, right? A leader should be able to promote the people from beneath them up, either past them, which is the, should be ultimately the goal or to their level where you're training your replacement and you keep leveling yeah. up as a leader, right? And I, I think a lot of people miss that. But even the coaches that don't advance you, like mm -hmm. your first one, are still serve a purpose. Absolutely. So although I'm saying do the best you can to be aware and intentionally select one, also pay attention to when something's mm. not working because you learn in those capacities as well. You learned elements of things that you sure. don't want in the next coach. You learned places that you will never coach yep. in the same way because of what your experience was. So it's good or bad. Point is, ask mm. for the help. Yeah, I think that's really key and that's really huge. And it really just circles back to that vulnerability aspect and that trying to be authentic to yourself, but authentic to others goes all the way into brand and and everything you, that I know you're working on. Can you unpack a little bit more about what you're working on right now? Maybe what you're struggling with in business as you're growing, because I think there's still obstacles we all fight, right? So what Every does day. that look like in your world these days? Yeah. So I'm going to hit on what I would encourage anybody else to hit on first, which is some of the internal game that I deal with. And then I'll talk about some of the more tactical elements in our business that truly are struggles or we're continuing to refine. You know, I had a deep and dark level of shame that I've been unpacking for a decade, right? Very intensive for five years. And I will tell you that shame, I, I credit Brene Brown for helping me see it more clearly, right? There's the, I'm not worthy, I'm not good enough. But there's also the, when you show up in the arena, you're ready to go to battle, it's who do you think you are? The reason I didn't identify with shame is because that's the world I lived in more often than not. I'm not saying I've never had self-worth issues. I'd be lying if I said that. But over here is where I lived because everything major I ever did in my life, I felt the need to apologize for 
I would pull the throttle back in my life because if I live too big, I'd make other people feel bad. Or at least that's what I'd convince myself of based on the narratives that I was receiving. And so shame is something that, that I deal with every single day, right? I wake up most days feeling like a fraud. I wake up most days feeling like I'm living in imposter syndrome. And despite the fact that I have a high level of awareness and recognize the truths around these things, I will never escape shame. It will be an adversary in constant pursuit. All I can do is have the impact of it be less and less. And I can live in it for moments instead of minutes or months. And so if I can live in it in moments, then I can see it for what it really is. And I can start to move through it. But I will tell you that from the emotional side of things, right? I often am like, why does anybody ever want to listen to me? Why does anybody actually want to coach me? And I know how good I am. I mean, genuinely, like I know how good I am. And I don't say that to impress. I say it to impress on the point. I am very clear. I am very confident. But these are deep, dark things. Again, it's an emotional trigger that keeps me cycling every day. Now, it also keeps me motivated and focused. So there's a benefit there. What we're dealing with in our business, we have launched a couple of new, really, revenue streams. I'm across four businesses, really. And so we have a bunch of different entities. And so one of the things that I am dealing with is truly the balance and integration of all entities to be very targeted and focused in particular directions that are complementary to each other, but also have unique differences. And so where I am very good as a leader is around vision, casting vision, creating vision, communicating vision. Where I'm not great is creating systems and processes, but I know that's important, right? And so I will tell you, and I shared this with you, right? Because we're still on the tail end of this. It was September, October that I started getting like the spidey senses that there might've been some leaks in my organization. And so I reached out to a good buddy of mine who is a high level operations person in a bunch of different directions just to ask for help. Ultimately, I ended up bringing in an operations person in the beginning of October. We put some systems and processes in place that within 30 days exposed the leaks. And so it was very, very clear to me, although I understand leverage and scale, although I understand how we do these things, one of my defaults is I tend to put more trust in people and situations and then take my foot off because I'm not a micromanager and I will never be a micromanager because I hate it. And I want to elevate and empower people to live on their own and have ownership in their roles. But without systems and processes to check along the way, you can lose sight of what's actually going on. And so Again, I help people do this, set these things up in their own business, but in my own world, I was being impacted by it. So we made changes. We felt them really heavy in November. We felt them less in December. We felt them less in January. But all of this was amidst launching three new revenue lines in the mix of making new systems processes. And I had to have some team changes, some personnel changes, because we, we didn't have the right people on the team. And so we've now worked through some of those things. So now what we're dealing with is We've had so much momentum behind us for so long that the last three months, we've gone back to reestablish and firm up the foundation. I've said for a long time, you cannot leverage and scale if you don't have a solid foundation. And I mean that not only in like clarity on who you are, who you're doing this with, and who you're going to impact, but also the elements that work and don't work within your business to be able to understand the tactics and strategies that you can deploy in different places, but also making sure you've got the right people on the bus. So we reset the foundation. We're launching. We have a ton of momentum behind us. Now it's execution mode. And so we are absolutely in a detailed execution mode, which is working, but it's a different cadence and rhythm than I was operating in up until October. And so the three months of establishing the foundation, truly, I personally am still finding my own rhythm and cadence for how best to live amongst the worlds that we're developing and growing and how best to be the right leader in the right place at the right time with the right entity and the right people. 
And where and how I can keep aware on that and stay intentional with that, we'll find our way. It's a part of business. It's a part of growing pains. But you know, there's the emotional piece that keeps me cycling every day. And then there's always like the strategic and tactical realities of growing and scaling a business that'll hit us. Even those of us who are aware of it and who understand it and who see it, we still get broadsided sometimes. I'm on the tail end of that. Yeah. It's funny how that works, man, because my specialty in the world, the thing I focus on with my clients is the operations, the structure, and the processes. And yet in my own business, you know, you're so far in the trenches, you know, sometimes you forget, you got to pick your head up every once in a while, but that usually means that somebody else has to help you pick your head up. And I love that you put that out there because it's one of those, we all have these similar struggles and where this whole conversation has gone for me is like, we need to recognize we're not alone, no matter how much we try to force ourselves to be alone. And I know you're doing a lot of amazing things. You're doing a lot of speaking, a ton of media content. You're really pushing a ton out there. Can you share with us? What is the legacy you're wanting to leave on the world with all the amazing things you're doing? Dude, you just gave me chills. And the reason you gave me chills on that one is because nobody's one asked me that question ever. And two, the way you ask that question is also very relevant to language that we use because I think legacy is very important in our world in the way that we teach, right? Because we think that every single interaction matters. And so every single interaction and every single moment, every single decision, every single breath is compounding towards whatever legacy we're going to leave because we demonstrate who we are to the world and the legacy that we're going to leave through the actions that we take. So phenomenal question. I will tell you with a lot of the lessons that I've learned, right, we are on a path to impact over a billion lives. And I say by 2045, one of my mentors and coaches right now tells me that that creates resistance and energy drain by putting a timeline on it. He's like, just do it as fast as you can. So that may be changing very soon, but we want to impact over a billion lives. And what that means to us is we want to help reduce the level of suffering on this planet. Okay. We know that the majority of suffering, right, comes in the areas. And I believe the root of all suffering fits into four categories, the things that are left undone, the things that are left unsaid, right? The things we lack permission to feel or say, or the things we lack the words to articulate. So, so often by fulfilling my purpose to allow my truth to give others permission to live theirs, we are elevating and empowering people to do this. We believe that we can reduce the level of suffering on this planet. We open up the opportunity for people to experience joy, freedom, and fulfillment holistically, right? If we work together, to your point exactly, we are better together always, I believe. This world has been set up in a way that we are so polarized and politicized, and we are literally separated every single turn we make based on belief systems or alliances or political parties or whatever that we feel like we've got to fit in to be safe. The reality of it is that the world does not operate in the black and white. The gift is often in the gray area. So my goal is to be able to help facilitate bringing us further and further together by helping people understand who they are before the world told them who to be so that we can remain authentic in our interactions, have vulnerability and authenticity in those things. And oh, by the way, if we do that successfully, That's when people will be able to stand on their own two feet, not only confident, but convicted in who they are, knowing that the world's not going to just accept them for who they are, but embrace them for exactly who they are. This is the kind of world, man, I want to build for my kids and my grandkids. And so my legacy is to hopefully allow the generations that follow us to help them break the patterns that we inherited and we continue to pass on if we're not careful. And so that's what I'm focused on, man. My legacy is is there. And the only thing binary in my world, the only thing that'll cause me to take to walk away from all that is if my wife and kids are not good. It's the one thing. Because if my own unique world is not allowing to exist in joy, freedom, and fulfillment, it doesn't matter what else I do. And so that clarity has come very strong in the last two years. So if I don't get there, it's because I turned where I needed to focus. Outside of that, we're going to get to a billion and it won't be alone. It's going to be through collective impact by having a lot of individuals pulling in the same direction. Man, I, I love that. And knowing you, you're going to achieve that well before that end date that you have, man. And one big thing that you just said that 
I absolutely love the gift is in the gray. That's a really interesting way to frame that because it, it's, it really kind of surmises like everything you've been through and your journey you've been through. And I want to give the audience an opportunity to learn more about you, connect with you, get more of this content. I know you have a ton of content out there. What's the best place for the audience to follow you, connect with you and reach out? Yeah. So the best place to follow is I'm at Bogart Brian on any social media platform. And so that's a great place to do it. It's same thing with YouTube, Instagram. It doesn't matter. Those are great places to consume. Our main website for Brian Bogert companies is brianbogert.com. And there's a ton of the content that gets pushed there. A lot of the podcasts that we've been featured on are there as well. And so, you know, the reality of it is, is like, that's the central landing place. There's many entry points into our world, but that's probably the best place to follow and consume the content. Cause we know that to impact a billion lives, by the way, 99.9999999999999% will never pay us a dollar. And we're very okay with that. That's why we put out so much content and you've consumed it long enough to know it's not sales tactics and techniques to drive you into our world. We're just genuinely giving thought process and content that will elevate and empower you to be more clear on who you are and have a greater impact in your own world. That's how we get to a billion. Yeah, I love it. And everything you're doing, man, you're, you're really just crushing the space. And I love hearing your story over and over again. And I really encourage the audience to reach out, follow all of that, reach out to Brian, just connect overall. And then, of course, come back this Friday for Tactical Friday, where we're going to unpack this even further and really get into the weeds about how we can go about everything we just discussed. Brian, thanks so much for your time today, my friend. Hey, thank you for the opportunity to be here, brother. If you hadn't built the platform, I wouldn't have been able to pour some good into the world. So thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Tactical Leadership Podcast. And I hope you got a ton of value out of what we talked about today. I also want to remind you that this show is brought to you by Night Protection Services. If you're a leader in a small to mid-sized business that does five to $10 million a year in revenue and want to improve retention costs, which could actually add up to being twice your employee's salary, all through creating a safer work environment and saving up to 25% in insurance costs. Be sure to visit nightprotectionllc.com.